Morning, everyone. Morning. Have you ever had one of those weeks? I've often, I've often wondered when people say that, what they mean. You know, have you ever had one of those weeks? Uh, yes, I've had plenty of weeks. Um, one of those weeks where you get to the end of it and you think, where did that week go? I had one of those this week. Here we are, Sunday, the beginning of another week. I'm excited about it. Who's excited about the coming week? Who's dreading it? Nobody willing to admit it? Who hasn't thought about it yet? There's a good one. (laughs) Who doesn't want me to mention it again today? Okay. This morning I've titled my message 10 to 1. Now I'm not a betting man. And so it isn't really about your chances of winning um, the next bet you place on a horse in the races. It's actually a celebration of the journey, A, that the Israelites went on from being given the Ten Commandments to Christ being crucified and dying on a cross for our sins, and B, the journey that we've been on. If you were around last year, you'd have remembered, I hope, the fact that we went through a journey of the Ten Commandments. Who remembers that? Who remembers what the Ten Commandments are? Some of you are. I'm going to read them out in a minute anyway. So you don't have to remember them. But we started with Ten Commandments, but I don't know whether you've thought about what we've been preaching on this year. But it's, we've actually, what is it now? It's the 17th of May. So January, February, March, April. That's really five months. If you take away January, because we just had a good time in January and, and preached on lots of different things. For four months, we've been preaching about one thing. And that one thing is, is grace. And so we've actually come on a journey from observing 10 very important regulations to understanding that Jesus came and brought one thing into our lives, which trumps all of those. So let's, let's remind that, let's refresh our memories about those commandments. We actually went through them backwards, but Exodus goes through them the right way round. And it starts off in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. First of all, he reminds them who he is. Then he says, number one, you must have no other God but me. Or you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. It's not being very nice here. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. That's number two. Number three, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Number four, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth and the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. 
That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Notice they get shorter as we go along. Number five, honour your father and mother, then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Six, I think we're up to now. You must not murder. Seven, you must not commit adultery. Eight, you must not steal. Nine, you must not testify falsely against your neighbour. And ten, you must not covet your neighbour's house. You must not covet your neighbour's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Have you all got those down pat? And you all keep those commandments totally, 100% without exception. Is that right? What was that? <laughs> yeah. You must not t testify falsely against your neighbour. means basically lie about anybody or anything. So... The Ten Commandments were a bit of a hard thing to keep up with. Uh, we discussed the relevance of the commandments. We w sort of walked and talked about which were easier to keep, which were almost impossible to keep, uh, which of these ones had hidden challenges in them, uh, which were really subtle in their meaning and which were really blunt that sort of, sort of hammered you and there was no getting around, you know. Thou shalt not, or you, you must not steal. It's hard to sort of, you must not steal except when it comes to torrents um, and software, which doesn't count because they didn't exist when the Ten Commandments were written. Um, so it can't mean them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, a, there's a, it's a no, what's the, what's the term? There's a, it's a victimless crime and all of that other BS that goes on. Um, and in the end, we concluded that they were irrelevant. Everybody agrees with that assessment. Well, it's actually true. We did, we, we did actually conclude that they were irrelevant. And I know that you're thinking, well, you can't be serious because they're the building blocks of our civilization. You know, Judeo-Christian civilization is built on the, on the Ten Commandments themselves being part of the fabric of our society. Is that right? I'm not sure you're looking at me blankly here. How can they be irrelevant? Well, they're, they're act they actually are irrelevant. I'm not joking when I say that. But they're irrelevant to us as Christians for the purpose for which they were intended. What were they intended for? It says in the beginning, the Lord, the, then God gave the people all these instructions. So they were instructions from God on how to have a relationship with God. If you didn't follow the instructions, you couldn't have a relationship with God. Why are they irrelevant now? Jesus! I'm more excited than you are about that. <laughs> they were essentially conditions to be met before God could have anything to do with you. They were the 10 requirements for living a life which would include God's love in it. Now, if you think about that, there must have been very few people who experienced God's love in their life and probably for only very brief moments of time because we've admitted that most of us could probably keep all the commandments for a bit. But then we'd slip up, wouldn't we? 
And as soon as we slipped up, that would involve sacrificing some dove or cow or, or, or lamb or something to get us back in, in right relationship with God and try it again. But we would always slip up and fail. Every time we, we got to the point where, yeah, I'm doing it perfectly, we'd break commandment seven and back to square one. Or every time somebody pulled out an iPhone that's a later model than ours, we'd start coveting our neighbour's goods and back we'd go. And so they're irrelevant for us now because Jesus came and died for our sins. So we're no longer required to live under the law of the Ten Commandments to have a relationship with God and experience His love for us. So they are, for that purpose, irrelevant. They're not necessarily irrelevant totally in our lives. So don't get that idea in your head. But the whole idea of our salvation and our relationship with God has gone from ten to one. Instead of having ten requirements that we need to fulfill, we have one gift that we have to accept. And that is the only condition, that we accept that one gift. There are lots of passages in the Bible that describe what a Christian should be like. And most of us have probably never read them. And I'm judging that by the fact that most of us probably don't act like the perfect Christian. Would anybody like to sort of claim that they, they are the perfect Christian here? Because if you are, there's no need for me to preach to you for a start. And a waste of time, really. So we're all, we're all on a journey. We're all wor working towards it. But uh, Philippians 2, verse 5, I think, is a, is a really eloquent way of describing what a Christian should be like. And it says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now what that, what that means is that he, didn't, he knew he was the Son of God. He didn't have to strive to be the Son of God. He was. It's like, Ben doesn't have to strive to be my son. He is. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing, and what's even worse for him is there's nothing he can do about it. <laughs> and I mean, you remember Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And the clouds opened and a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What did the devil do straight after that? He spent time with Jesus in the desert trying to convince him to prove that he was God's son so Jesus realized he didn't have to cling to this idea he didn't have to strive for this idea that he was God's son he didn't have it wasn't a major goal he put in every week you know be God's son you know, sort of that's what I'm aiming for this week got to be God's son but as Christians we often do that you know this week I'm going to be a better Christian I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to please God more. I'm going to be nicer to people. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments. We cling to the idea that we are sons and daughters of God. Jesus was God. When we accept Him, it, let's, let's go on. It says, instead of clinging to this relationship, He gave up His divine privileges. I don't know how 
big you re realize that that is. He gave up his divine privileges. We would call it a right. There was a Facebook post which I can't remember the subject matter of it, but it said, if it's a right, why are we debating it? Because the person who put it up instinctively understand if it's a right it's a right you, you don't debate it you, it's a right to have something and often today the, the word rights is thrown around like confetti people have this right we have this right it's an, in an un, inalienable right um, we have the right to do this we have the right to bear arms we have the right to worship we have people talk about their rights and they st and they'll fight for their rights They'll go to jail for their rights. They'll commit murder for their rights. And yet here we see Jesus gave up his rights. He took up the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that's what we're called to as Christians. Because in accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord, he has elevated us to a position at the same level as he has uh, that he is in God's eyes. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When we accept Jesus, we are children of God. If you want to break that down as children, that makes Brendan a son, Kirsty a daughter, Georgia a daughter, Ben a son, Jordan a son. We are sons and daughters the same as Jesus Christ. That is a high honour. And yet, we're called not just to have the honour of Christ. We're not called to have it. We have the privilege of that honour. But we have to have the attitude of Christ. And it says here that Christ gave up that privilege for our sake. His attitude was not that he was a big bossy boots because he had honour and sat next to God, but that he was humble and gave his life for others so that they could receive the same honour that he had. See, we get the privileges. And if you, if you want to put it that way, they're, they're, they are the same as Jesus, our right. It is our right to sit next to Jesus in heaven, to rule and reign on this earth. And yet, we are called to have the attitude that Jesus had. You see, it's God's grace that allows us experience his love and it's that one thing and not the ten rules that went before it that determines our position you see but here's the thing if we take on the attitude of Christ and that's a big if because I don't know about you but giving up your rights is really hard to do Deciding that you are not going to fight for something you believe in is really hard. And that, now, it doesn't mean you give up on what you believe in. 
it doesn't mean that you change your mind on what is true and what is not. But you don't harm people in that belief. You don't, you don't embarrass people. You don't fight people. You don't start hate campaigns against people because they disagree with you. doesn't mean you don't stand firm for what you believe and refute falsehoods that are brought against you. But it says here, right, Jesus was humble. Jesus actually gave up his rights. He could have stood there and thundered, I am the Son of God. How dare you nail me to a cross? How dare you even think about it? And as Christians, we could say, we are followers of Christ. You know, we, we are seated in heavenly places. How dare you say anything that contradicts what God tells us? We're going to burn your village to the ground just because you've said nasty things about God. Even more, you said nasty things about me, so I'm going to really burn it. I mean, we can get really petty and vindictive as people, using God's name as an excuse. You know, they insulted Jesus. So I'm going to kill them all. That doesn't sound like a, the sort of thing Jesus did. In fact, I don't find any record of him actually getting upset and taking any punitive action against anybody who was mean to him, rude to him. The, the most violent thing he did was turn over the tables in the, in the temple for the money lenders and he smacked some blind guy in the eye with some mud. And in the end he got his sight back when he did that anyway, so that was pretty, pretty positive sort of violence. It's the sort I like. I'd like to try that one day. But when we, when we take on board the same attitude that Jesus had as described in Philippians and we apply it to our own lives, guess what begins to happen? The desires develop inside of us that enable us, in fact, make us want to actually live by the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments for us, as people who are living in an age of grace, who are people who are living at a time when Jesus Christ has died and risen again, the Ten Commandments for us are irrelevant when it comes to actually getting God's love. Jesus took all that on himself. They don't stand as a roadblock for us to achieve to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They actually stand there as a guideline for what we can achieve because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They become a byproduct of a relationship as we get to know Jesus more and more. Guess what? You want to actually follow the commandments more and more. You understand that the Ten Commandments are not so much a set of instructions but a description of the character of Jesus Christ himself. And that as we are called to have his attitude and his character, guess what happens? Suddenly you start making decisions based on the character of Jesus. Suddenly you decide that you're not going to steal electronically or any other way. You're not going to break the speed limit. You're not going to put mud on your number plate so the speed cameras can't catch you as you go past. I saw a great... <laughs> great picture the other day of some guy caught in a speed camera and a bird had flown across his number plate at just the right time so they couldn't get him. <laughs> That's wrong. That's naughty. Why are you laughing? 
But it's funny how we sort of think that, you know, good on him, he's got away with something, which is actually a really bad attitude to have. Um, we should punish that bird, sacrifice it on the altar. <laughs> Not even sure it was a dove. Um, but we all, I think, struggle with applying the discipline of following those commandments to our lives. It, um, or is it just me? Oh, good. <laughs> hate to feel alone with these things. But, see, what I think is that we would, we would actually have less trouble with these things if we actually just realised that it's God grace, God's grace that does it. And if we marvelled more at the way that grace operates in our lives, we wouldn't struggle so much with the implications of grace. Any time we struggle to obey one of the commandments, I believe it's not actually a lack of understanding about what's required of us. Most of them are pretty plain. And you know, we took 12 months to go through them, so anybody who went through that, and if you didn't, I, you're excused. But we, we, we know what it means. And you know, the short one, you know, do not murder. I mean, that's hard to argue with. And do not steal, we've been, and keep going through that one, I don't know why I'm harping on that one today. Um, don't lie, don't testify falsely against your neighbour don't misuse the name of the Lord your God all, all of these things are really self-explanatory so why do we struggle so much to obey them see it's not even a desire to do the wrong thing some of us like to think of ourselves as rebels uh, we're not, we're not going to go along with the rest of the sheep and obey the commandments we're going to break out here and just do a bit of mischief on the side. And we, know, we can come back and ask forgiveness and God will forgive us, but we've sown our wild oats and we can just say, you know, I wasn't one of those meat and mild Christians. I just did my thing. I disobeyed God, the big man's, you know, you know he's not the boss of me. Yes, he is. <laughs> he's just nicer about it than your normal boss. But the, real, the reality about our struggle is that it comes from our lack of understanding of how amazingly awesome and incredible the gift of grace really is. Because you see, once we understand what Jesus did for us, what we understand what we have in our hands as Christians and people of God, followers of Jesus Christ, once we understand that, obeying the commandments is chicken feed. Easy. It's natural. They're things we want to do, not things we have to do. And that's why grace was such an incredible gift. Because it took away ten requirements and brought them into the realm of ten goals, if you like. Ten indicators of our understanding of grace. Because we can, we can be given... We can give, forgiven for lying. We can even be forgiven for murder. Because we live in, in an age of grace. But the thing is that our desire to do all of those things, if we understand grace, will vanish. So my challenge to you this morning is, rather than struggle to obey the Ten Commandments, struggle to understand grace. Put your heart and your effort into understanding what God wants for your life. Why God chose you. I mean, it's a good question. Why me, Lord? Not in a negative way. But why? What do you have for my life? What is it about me that you want 
to do in your kingdom? What can I do that nobody else can? What purpose do you have for me? Once we understand grace, the rest of it falls into place. But if we don't understand it, we struggle the same as the Israelites did in actually trying to fulfill ten requirements to try and get into God's good graces. And Whenever we, we get to that stage, God just, I reckon he hangs his head and says, oh, good grief. All that teaching, all that sacrifice that my son made, and they still don't get it. They're still trying to do things the old way. We are not Israelites. Even, I love what he, he said in that, that video. And it's, it's interesting how, if, if we haven't read the Bible, if we don't understand the history of Jesus, how warped it become, can become. Uh, Jesus was Italian. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I've read of uh, situations in, um, in the United States where, where when people have actually stated that Jesus was Jewish, they've been thrown out of their churches because um, nobody had considered that he might have been Jewish. He was Anglo-Saxon. I mean, he, he, was, he possibly came from England. I mean, who knows? The, the idea that people get when, when churches get insular and, and don't um, sort of communicate with the world around them is quite amazing. Um, I don't know what that's got to do with anything. But, um, it's a fun fact. <laughs> so... We've got to have the same attitude that Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't strive for it. And as Christians, we need to accept the fact that when Jesus becomes our Lord, although we are a servant of God, he raises us to son and daughtership with him, to immense privilege. And yet he says to have his attitude, not to cling to that privilege, but to have a humble attitude to live a humble life. And the interesting thing is that even though he didn't cling to it, we know that it was the most dear relationship he had. And do you know what? The hardest thing about the crucifixion was not that they put nails in his hands and feet, not that they put a crown of thorns around his head or whipped him until his back was raw and bleeding. The hardest thing for Jesus was at the moment of his death when he took on the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, that because of his holiness, God had to remove himself. His father had to remove himself from Jesus. Jesus was alone for that short time that he took on the sins of the world. And that was what caused Jesus the anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. The fact that for however long it was, possibly only a split second, that he was actually separated from the love of his father. The anguish, the, 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 the arguments he had with himself and with God about whether to go through it or not and all of this were actually nothing to do with the pain and the suffering in a physical sense. They were actually to do with the suffering that Jesus was going to feel when he was removed from the presence of Almighty God. It was that important. And yet he didn't cling to it. He had his hands open. He said, okay, Father, whatever your will, I'll do it. So... Our relationship with Jesus is actually the most important relationship we have. If a relationship with God the Father was important to Jesus, I think it should be important to us. And I think that's the first step to understanding grace, 
is to understand that our life, the very source of our life, comes from our relationship through Jesus with Almighty God. And this morning, I want to invite people. If you've never had that relationship, if you've never decided to make a relationship with Jesus Christ a priority in your life, I reiterate that point. It is the most important relationship, not only in Jesus' life, but if we're going to follow Jesus, it has to be the most important relationship in our life. And that's actually what starts us on our walk from 10 to 1. Until we accept Jesus, we spend our lives trying to follow a set of rules that makes us a good person, a healthy person, a worthwhile person. And, and the, you, you get people banding around things like, well, I'm a good person. I should go to heaven. I've led a good life. I, I help, I, I'm generous. I help the poor. I, I, we do all of these things. And yet, Jesus said, it's a relationship with me that stops us striving to do good things, to get in good with God and allows us to let God's grace do it for us. So can I get you to just bow your heads for a moment, close your eyes. And if you're here this morning and you have never taken a step to make a relationship with Almighty God through His Son Jesus Christ a priority in your life, I want to offer you that opportunity right now. All you have to do is say a prayer that welcomes God's presence into your life, Jesus' Spirit into your heart. And I'd love to pray that with you together this morning. So while nobody's looking around, if that's you and you'd like to take that step this morning, could you just raise your hand so that I can see it? And I'll acknowledge it and pop it straight back down again. And then we can pray. Is there anyone here at all who wants to take that step of a relationship Jesus Christ you may have made that decision before but feel that you've walked so far away that you no longer have that relationship God loves to welcome people back into relationship with him as much as he enjoys making new relationships if you feel that's you this morning I invite you to raise your hand also because I'd love to pray with you Okay, everybody open their eyes. Let's stand up. I was going to be mean and get you to stand before you'd opened your eyes, but I thought that could lead to some accidents. I, I just want us to, to pray this morning. I want you to pray for you. Does anybody think anybody here deserves more prayer than you? Yes, that was a trick question. But without being rude and prying into people's lives, I can pretty much guarantee that every single one of us here has struggled with the fact that we try to be good Christians. And the way we do that mostly is to follow the rules. Because a lot of us like the rules. Who here is a person who likes to have rules and regulations in place? willing to admit it see a lot, a lot of a lot of the others of us are a bit more free-flowing 
we find rules restrictive. It doesn't actually make us any better at understanding grace. So don't, don't feel good about yourself just because you're not a rule follower. But we need to understand that God isn't impressed by our rule following ability. God isn't impressed by our rebelliousness. God isn't even impressed by the way, we, how laid back we are. Whether our attendance record at church is perfect or blemished. Whether we come to every prayer meeting or we've never been to any of them. Whether we pray every day or whether sometimes we forget. Whether we've read our Bible today, yesterday, last month, last week. Last time we read it was a long time ago. God doesn't measure those things and give us a, a mark out of 10. His desire is that we understand and operate in the grace that He shows us. So I want you to pray for yourself this morning. I want you to pray this prayer after me. Dear Lord, I am your servant. I am your child. I recognize your gift of grace. I acknowledge right now that it is the greatest gift I could ever receive. Everything else is secondary. Today I pledge to take steps understand and appreciate your gift more and more and more and more and more from this moment on I shall ignore striving to be good I shall only accept your grace as an encouragement follow you and be a good Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you follow that? Got a bit long-winded in the middle there. But guess what? God doesn't say you have to be perfect at praying. Luckily, he says you don't even have to be perfect at preaching. In fact, he says that Nobody is an expert in what God does unless it's through their experience. You don't become an expert at prayer by reading about it. You actually pray. I didn't become an expert on my wife by reading about her or praying about her, actually. It was by hanging around her that I now know what her favorite flowers are favorite color, though that seems to change a fair bit. I know her favorite item of clothing, because there are so many of them in the cupboard. But it's only because of my relationship with her that that is true, and that's what God wants for us. Grace is our open door to a relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be taking it.